0: I want to call your attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 6, John chapter 6, and as we pursue our studies in this chapter, I think you're familiar with the context by now, and so we'll read just two verses that we want to focus our thoughts upon In this hour, John 6, reading verses 14 and 15. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, To make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And may God bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. May he bless the preaching of it as well. This lengthy chapter in the Gospel of John covers a period of two Days, two very full days, two eventful days in the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen that he was followed into an out-of-the-way place by a large gathering, a multitude of many thousands of people and they heard him they they listened to his teaching he healed those who were sick and then because they were hungry and it was late in the day <clears throat> he fed them with a miraculous multiplication of just a few small Pieces of bread and fish. And that brings us then to these verses before us. And and these are very significant verses. The, the, the development of the action here is just fascinating to observe and consider. And as always, there's much for us to learn here. <clears throat> we want to see. First of all here, the reaction of the multitude and the plans that they had for Jesus. And we see this in verse 14 and at the opening of verse 15. We know again in the context here and in the accounts given in Matthew, Mark and Luke That it's late in the day, the sun's getting very low, shadows are getting long, and the people with full and happy stomachs come to this conclusion in verse 14. This is of a truth. The prophet that should come into the world. They come to a consensus and an agreement on the part of all of them, 5,000 plus, that there's no doubt about it, this is the way it is, this is true, that this miracle worker who has just fed us miraculously, is none other than the prophet that Moses told our ancestors would come. This is he. This is of a truth. That prophet that should come into the world. And I read uh, in our hearing a few moments ago from Deuteronomy 18, Moses' own account of that very event there at at the foot of Mount Sinai after God had spoken the 10 commandments audibly to the people and there was a cloud and there was darkness and there was a, a fire burning on the top of Mount Sinai and the people were afraid. And at first, you know, they had wanted to rush in and, and see God. And as soon as he spoke these Ten Commandments with all of and, and the ground was shaking, earthquakey, they draw back and they say, Moses, we don't want to hear anymore. You go and talk to God and then come and tell us what God says. And God said they have well spoken. But there would be more than just Moses to speak to them from God. God promised here at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb, to send them a prophet like Moses, but only better. A prophet that he would raise up from their midst. And that he would speak from God to man. He would speak the words of God. God would put his words in the mouth of this prophet and he would speak those words, all of them. And here in John chapter 6, many generations later, the people of Israel say, this has to be the prophet that Moses spoke of. It is to their credit, at least, that they were familiar with the Old Testament They knew that a prophet had been promised and that generations had been waiting for him to arrive on the scene, to come into this world, and they recognized that it had come to pass right before them, standing in their midst, was this one that, Generations and generations of Israelites had been waiting for, expecting, looking for. And they have the privilege of being the generation that knows him, that sees him, to which he comes and to which he is revealed. They knew moreover, again, they're familiar with the Old Testament enough to know that, There were various prophets throughout the Old Testament who were miracle-working prophets. You see that in Moses. You see that in Elijah and Elisha. You see it uh, in in Samuel uh, in between those two, uh, Moses and, and Elijah. You see it later in the days of Daniel. There are these periods, various periods, where there are... Miracle-working prophets. And so they see these miracles that Jesus did just in the previous hours of healing the sick. And, of course, they were familiar with things he'd done in previous days as well. And then this feeding of the 5,000 just tops everything they've ever seen. And so they say this has to be the prophet. In fact, as we'll see later on in this chapter, they saw a parallel between Moses and one of the miracles that God wrought through Moses and in the time of Moses, which was to give manna from heaven to feed the people for 40 years until they came into the land of promise. And what Jesus had done here, here's a miraculous feeding. This is just like Moses. We're seeing things that, That our forefathers saw. This has to be the prophet. Just to give you an idea of the expectation on the part of people in Palestine, when John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, began his ministry, people came to him and asked him, Are you the prophet? Are you the one? that moses told us would come and of course john the baptist denied and said no i'm not the prophet he was the forerunner of the prophet he introduced the prophet but he was not the prophet himself that's in chapter one of the gospel of john over in chapter four we see that even the Samaritans, with all of their religious confusion, still held on to a uh, a prophet and the fulfillment of the prophecy concerning a prophet that Moses gave. The woman at the well in John chapter four says to Jesus, "I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things." Even following John chapter six, some months later in chapter seven, we read that there were still people talking about this and, and uh, saying these things. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying said of a truth, this is the prophet. John chapter seven, verse 40. So, these people on this day have come to this conclusion. This is the prophet. So, what does that mean? To them, it meant this. This great prophet has to become our king. They were absolutely overwhelmed with what they had witnessed, what they had experienced. And they knew, of course, that not only were there prophecies of a great prophet to come, but there were likewise many prophecies throughout the Old Testament, throughout their scriptures, of a coming king. And they put it all together. And they say, well, he's not only the prophet, but he's a king. And what's he doing here <laughs> in a remote place uh, in, out of Galilee in the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee in the region known as Perea or Decapolis? He needs to be in Jerusalem. He needs to be on the throne of David. He should be reigning as king now. And after all, this is Passover season. The multitudes will be gathering in just a few days there. We've got to get him down there and get a crown on his head so he can be the king. Remember also, and we mentioned this in another message a few weeks ago, that people from Galilee were especially, uh, shall we say, patriotic, or maybe beyond patriotic. They were zealots for Jewish independence. It was, I mean, they, they were, as we would say, red-blooded, uh, Americans or red-blooded Jews. And so, They were eager for liberation from Rome. And they say in so many words, our time has come. We've had false hopes in others who didn't deliver us from Rome. But here's the real one. Here's the prophet. Here's the king. This is the perfect time for a grand public coronation. And if he isn't willing to go with us down to Jerusalem, we're going to pick him up and carry him there. We'll take him by force if we have to. Willing or not, he's going to be our king. It will be wonderful. It will be like the glory days of David. Days that we read about when the kingdom of Israel was expanded and conquering every enemy and everyone is healthy and wealthy and wise and what are we waiting on? Now, without even saying anything about what Jesus did here in response, there ought to be some... uh, Concern in our minds just from what we see thus far. For one thing, the people were in a contradiction inasmuch as they acknowledged Jesus as their prophet and as the prophet, but there is no doubt that they had not listened to him very well. He had not said anything that would lead them to want to take this action to haul him to Jerusalem and install him as a king. What does a prophet do? The primary work of a prophet is to speak, to talk. To teach. And even though they acknowledge him as the prophet, there's no indication that his teaching had had much impact upon them. Again, in the words of Deuteronomy 18, they were supposed to hearken, to hear his words that he spoke. These people, however were more interested in seeing the great miracles that he did and tasting the good food that he brought to them. And I I think this is a point that needs to be understood. They were more interested in what they had seen than in what they had heard. The work of a prophet is to teach. And, and as we've mentioned several times. Jesus taught them. Here in this place. Before he ever fed them. But there's no mention here of what he had taught them. In their minds. That, that isn't the thing that stood out to them. What stood out to them was what he had done. His His miracles. And so, this ought to raise some uh, concern in our minds as to these people and, and their motivation and their interest in Jesus. And it leads us to ask this question Do you hear the Word of God? Or do you simply chase after miracles? and things that you can see. I don't need to tell you that we live in a generation that is enamored with all of the sights and claims of miracles and great things to see, and especially if they benefit people in some earthly way and move them up the you know the social scale and increase their bank account and so on but how many people want to hear what Jesus has to say let us make sure that we do another cause for concern here with regard to this multitude was that They were not submissive to the will of Christ, were they? They were very headstrong about their own plans. They had big plans for Jesus. They're going to make him king whether he's willing or not. They've determined that their will is uh, preferable to his will. As it says in verse 15, they'll come and take him by force to make him a king. And again, there's an application for us here. Do we surrender our will to Jesus' will? While on the one hand we can understand the zeal and the excitement of these people, we have to say their zeal was misguided. It was self-willed. They needed to surrender their will to his will. And that is what we desperately need as well. You know, this multitude here in John chapter 6 sounds remarkably like many today. Many religionists, many gathered in places called churches today. They've figured out what God should do and what God should not do. They've figured out how God should do everything, and they think that they can make it happen. That, beloved, is what elsewhere in Scripture is called will worship. It is worship according to our will. And that is not the worship of the true and living God. We must beware of self-guided religion. We must learn from God's word what to believe how to think, what to do. And we must seek the will of God above our own will. We must bow our will to his better will. If these people had been sincere and true concerning God and his word and his will, they would have said, if, it's, if Jesus is not willing to be made a king, then we need to back off. But not so. They had big plans for Jesus. And were determined that their plans would prevail. And one more thing before we go on, and that is this. Perhaps we see a kind of temptation brought to our Lord here. I can't help but see something of a parallel here to the attitude of these people and what they are offering to Christ, we might say, as far as an earthly throne is concerned. We see something of a parallel with how Satan tempted the Lord Jesus at the beginning of his public ministry, where, among other temptations, We read of this one, Satan promises to give the kingdoms of this world to Christ if he will bow down and worship Satan. There's something similar going on here. Here is a temptation for Jesus to march into Jerusalem and declare himself king and he's got people who are willing to to back him up in it. And just as Jesus resisted the temptation from Satan in Matthew chapter 4, so he refused the temptation this day. And the common thread in in these two events as far as temptation is concerned is this. It is access to a throne without going through the route of the cross and Jesus faithfully and sinlessly resisted the temptation in whatever form it came whether it came directly from satan or whether it came from perhaps uh, zealous and uh, and well-intentioned jews well we hasten on here to the last part of verse 15 And we see the plans that Jesus had. These people had big plans for him, but he had other plans. It says, well, let's read the whole verse. When Jesus therefore perceived or knew that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. This is at least a second time here in John chapter 6 that we see this, this knowledge of Christ's divine nature. I don't know how else to express it. Back in verse 6, it says concerning the feeding of the multitudes, he himself knew what he would do. So he had this feeding all planned out in advance in, in his own divine mind, and here he, he Knows the plans of these people to take him to Jerusalem and install him as king. And I just mention this because it shows us a window into the divine nature of Christ that was i am at a loss for words. That was in connection with his human nature. His human nature was tired and weary and needed rest, and that's why he went over the Sea of Galilee to this other shore. And yet, in his divine nature, he knows everything. There's a wonderful mystery, and to our little minds, I think it will always remain a mystery of the incarnation and how there's a divine nature that assumes a human nature. And both natures are in one glorious and blessed person of the God-man. But the thing that we want to note especially here is he departed into a mountain himself alone. He would not allow the plan of the people to proceed. He had other plans. He departed he withdrew from them and into a mountain and probably the same hill that he had been on before the people arrived as they followed him. He comes down, he teaches them, heals the sick, feeds them, and then when they get ready to carry him on down to Jerusalem, he turns and goes back up the mountain. He goes in the opposite direction From where they wanted him to go. Notice. What he did not do here. He did not say to them. It's about time. That you figured this out. What has taken you so long. To figure out. That. I need to be the king in Jerusalem. I've been waiting for this occasion. Let's get moving. Let's go and reestablish the kingdom. And I will assert my crown rights as king. It's quite the opposite. He'll have nothing to do with the kind of kingdom that they want and the kind of kingdom that they envision. He turns and goes away by himself. He refuses to be the king that they wanted. Now, beloved, this is big. This is huge. The issue here was not whether Christ is a king. He is a king. He acknowledged that elsewhere. I mean, again and again, people came to him and called him the son of David. Just do a search of that phrase and it's. All through the four Gospels, and of course it's an Old Testament title with regard to the Messiah when he would come. He would be the son of David, fulfilling the the promise made to David back in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He would be a king like David. At the next Passover, a year later, Pilate would ask him point blank, are you a king? And his answer amounts to an affirmation as he tells him the nature of his kingdom. But this is the whole issue. The issue is not, is Jesus a king? The the question is, what is the nature of his kingdom? What is the manner of his kingdom? The people here on this day, and like their forefathers, expected a carnal, earthly kingdom. They had no concept of the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to reign over, and that is a spiritual kingdom. There are two comings of Christ. His first and his second. His first coming is when he was born as a babe, laid in a manger in Bethlehem. His second coming is when he comes in the clouds of glory at the end of this world. And in his first coming, he came as a king over a spiritual kingdom. He did not come to restore an earthly kingdom or a carnal or fleshly kingdom. When he comes the second time, his kingdom will appear in its fullness and it will encompass all of the earth and a new heaven and new earth forever and ever. We look forward to that aspect of his kingdom. In its present manifestation, it is a spiritual kingdom. In fact, the Lord's action that he took here to refuse the, the, the crown that is offered to him and instead to go and walk away from it is, in effect allowing the present political leadership that was in place to continue. Matthew Poole, commenting here, says this, Our Savior never came into the world to disturb the civil order and government in it, and constantly avoided giving the least occasion for such a suspicion. End quote. And I think Poole brings up an interesting point there. Let's suppose that Jesus had gone along with what the crowd was calling for. And he goes into Jerusalem and, and there's this triumphal entry like no other. And, and they put a crown on his head and there's a, a throne somewhere for him to sit on and, and so on. You can just imagine the charge of treason And insurrection that would have resulted. Word would have gotten to Pontius Pilate very quickly and gone to the emperor very quickly. And that movement would have been crushed. And the charge of treason and insurrection would have had some validity. He would have been a challenge to the existing government. But our Lord's position was that the present political structures should in fact remain intact. Now, the Jewish leaders figured this out. According to John chapter 11, they saw that he wasn't going to deliver them from Rome. He wasn't going to liberate them from this servitude. And they were angry about it because that's the kind of king that they wanted. It's the kind of king everyone wanted. We read in John 11, uh, 47, Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? What are we going to do? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. What are they saying here? They're saying he's not going to free us from Rome. He's no threat to Rome. If anything, he's weak toward Rome. And his growing influence will end up costing us the favors that we have from Rome. He's really a threat to national security. He's not the king that we seek. He's not the king that we need at this time. And so what Jesus says to the multitude here, the Jewish leaders, if not by this time, at least a year later, had certainly figured it out and understood Jesus' position. Again, the the core issue here is the nature of Christ's kingdom. He is a king but what is the nature of his kingdom where is his kingdom well if we had time we'd turn and read there in, in Luke 17 where it says that the Jews came to him and, and demanded an answer when will the kingdom come and he said the kingdom is within you it's a different kind of kingdom it's not the kingdom you're thinking of It's an internal kingdom. It's in the hearts of men. Well, how does his kingdom come? He says again in that same passage, Luke 17 and verse 20. It comes without observation, without fanfare, without outward show. His kingdom is a very unconventional kingdom. As he said to Pilate, it's not of this world. Not from here. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it, it is designed in such a way that it operated concurrent with Caesar's kingdom and Herod's kingdom and so on. <coughs> His kingdom is made in such a way that it operates concurrent with any kingdom at any age or generation upon this earth. Now, yes, his kingdom has deeply affected the kingdoms of this world, but it does so in a spiritual way and from the grassroots, we might say, by a segment of the population being converted and bowing to his authority and his truth. And the larger that that segment is in any given society, the greater will its influence and effect be upon that, that society or that nation. Now, before we leave this point, I don't want to make too much of what Jesus did here in in turning around and going back up into the mountain and refusing the kingdom that was offered him. But nor do we want to make too little of it. I'll just ask this question. Does this text in some way give us some instruction concerning what uh, some today are calling Christian nationalism? And I've just paid attention enough to figure out that the phrase is defined in such a broad way that it it really means anything that anybody wants it to mean. But as far as an earthly kingdom is concerned, I think any approach that we take has to at least address and, and consider the action of our Lord Jesus here on this occasion. Jesus obviously did not jump at the chance to advance a Jewish nationalist movement, did he? And he did not say to these people, uh, not yet. Now, come back a year from now. After I have risen from the dead and then we'll get this thing started and, and and I'll become king in Jerusalem. Nothing at all like that. And I guess the question in one way is, has Christ's attitude changed from what it was then? I think we have something of an answer here from an old Scottish writer, and it's kind of surprising that it comes from this uh, Scottish Presbyterian, uh, George Hutcheson, in 1657. But he said this, albeit Christ be a true king over his church, and do exercise a spiritual kingdom in it, and have also a spiritual government established for keeping his subjects in order, Yet he came not into the world to be a worldly king, nor to administrate a kingdom which is of this world. Nor is his kingdom prejudicial to the thrones and civil government of men, but the best pillar they have if they will suffer him to rule among them. Therefore doth Christ refuse all this offer as not competent to him, and this teacheth his followers to beware of usurping lordly dominion under the pretext of administering the things of his kingdom. End quote. <clears throat> well, we have to draw this to a close here, but l- let me say this: at his second coming, his kingdom will appear differently it will be the only kingdom and it will be an everlasting kingdom and it will come with observation. Paul tells Timothy that he will judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, that there's an aspect to the kingdom that is, is not here yet. The Jewish people reading their old Testament scriptures saw Promises of his second coming that they thought would be fulfilled in his first coming. That's kind of an oversimplification of it, but that's kind of what it comes down to. They loved the things concerning his glorious rule as a king, but they ignored the other things about his shameful death as a humble servant. And that part of the Old Testament prophecies of Messiah didn't fit their plans. And so they ignored them. And when he refused the crown that they offered him and did not usher in an earthly kingdom, they abandoned him. They turned against him. And we'll see that here the next day. And so I say that to say this, let us not make the same mistake and confuse his two comings and the manifestation of his kingdom in each of the two. <clears throat> well, let me just move on here. Just, just mention a couple of things. As we read the account in Matthew and Mark of these same things, <clears throat> we see this. Jesus told the disciples to get into a boat And head back across the Sea of Galilee, across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, back to the northwest shore. So he gets, he sends the disciples this way. He sends the people away. They came by land, and so he sends them away. And then he goes back up the hill where he had been earlier. And though John doesn't mention it, Matthew and Mark do. He went up the hill, it says, to pray. He wanted to be alone in seclusion. and, And the wording here emphasizes that he departed into a mountain himself, alone. He didn't even want the 12 to be there with him. If Jesus needed to be alone and pray, how much more do we need to be alone and pray? And like our Lord, let us not be tempted by public applause, but rather shun public applause and pray to God to be kept from sinful vainglory. So let me just make these applications as we close. Let us search our hearts. It is possible to make a correct identification of Christ as prophet and king and yet fail to have saving faith in him. These people illustrate that clearly. In some ways, they were right. They understood, yes, he's a prophet and and he's a king. And yet overall, they were wrong. They knew things about Jesus, but they didn't really know Jesus, did they? And so we might say it this way. His first coming did some people no good, even though. They were waiting for him to come, and they thought that they were waiting, and they, they were, in, in some sense, waiting for the Messiah to come, and yet his coming ultimately didn't do them any good. So likewise, there are people today waiting for the second coming of Christ, and it won't do them any good. And you hear people talking, oh, I think we're in the last days. I, I think Jesus must be coming real soon, and we sure need it, and, and so on. Do they really know Him in their hearts by faith? Or is it just a carnal kind of expectation? Beloved, let us make sure that we are trusting in Christ and Now that we bow to his kingly authority. Now, yes, he is a king. And he rules in the hearts of his people. And let's see to it that we submit to him in our heart. That we trust in him. That we enter into his kingdom. That we bow to his scepter in all of life. Let us learn from this text, to have a greater concern for spiritual things than carnal things. There is no quicker way to drive Christ away than to be focused upon carnal, earthly, fleshly, temporal things because he's interested in heavenly, spiritual, eternal things. We must submit our plans to his and our interests to his. And his are best. And last of all, in a way, it's it's another way of saying the same thing. Rather than a concern over the tyranny of Caesar today, Let us be concerned over the tyranny of sin in our own heart. And I know that the tyranny of Caesar today is real, just as it was in John chapter 6. And there's no hiding the reality of crooked politicians and scheming bureaucrats and communist globalists and I mean we can just go on and on with that but there is a tyranny that is even worse than all of that and that's the tyranny of sin in the heart and in terms of eternity that tyranny is more dangerous and destructive by far and that's The liberation that we must seek first. To be free from sin and to be right with God. Let us learn from this text to be spiritually focused.